Hi, I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female. This week, I'm speaking about sustainability and the changes that need to take place in our world, both from a consumer standpoint and from the brands that are manufacturing the products we consume. My guest today is absolutely passionate about sustainability, the circular economy, and most of all, about helping companies carve out a new model. In a minute, you'll get to meet Carrie Ellen Phillips, co-founder of BPCM, one of the world's leading fashion PR agencies with offices in New York, Los Angeles, and London. We spoke about Carrie's journey, how she views the challenges ahead, and how COVID and Black Lives Matter have influenced our views as consumers and as humans. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our sponsors. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Hi, I'm Carrie Ellen Phillips. I am a co-founder of BPCM, and I am a sustainability advocate and educator. So before we talk about more recent projects, I do want to go back in time and ask you to sum up your professional journey of, you know, probably the past 20 years in just a few words. But what led you to where you are now? And since we're, we're going to be talking about your efforts with sustainability, what really gave you the bug and got you on the sustainability track? That's such a good question. I, um, you know, it's funny, I've been talking to a lot of people over quarantine and having a lot of conversations about how you get started. I've been, I've been talking to a lot of students and when you talk to students, you have to kind of go back to where they were and figure out how you do find your passions. And I grew up, my father was an officer in the U S Navy. So I grew up on a little Island in the East China sea uh, called Okinawa, which is, was a little uh, Japanese protectorate. Um, and it was a tiny island at the at the at the smallest end. It was a mile wide. Um, you're really out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and it's very interesting because when I now do work with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, I find when I'm talking about the circular economy, my whole mind goes back to being a kid living in Okinawa, and you had to make do with what you had. Um, it wasn't like we were living in a hut, but it was, I remember my dad, we had a little um, tea pond and it was full of algae and he wanted to clean it up so that we could put fish in there in the house that we were renting. And so he had to go find all of the parts to put this little pump system together. And it was, you know, there was a garden hose that he found in the garage of the house that we were renting. And then he went and got the little pump and he, you know, and, and so it was, you, you put things together with what you had. It wasn't always about buying a new thing in order to achieve your ends. Or and the, it, ordering the part on Amazon wasn't an option. There was certainly no Amazon. And if there was, it probably would have taken six weeks to get to us. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was, um, it was a totally different world. Our closest place to us to get things from was mainland Japan, which is also an island. So it was really, we really had to make do. Um, and it didn't feel like making do. It felt like just living and that's how you lived. So I think interestingly enough, that was something, those were such formative years for me. We moved back when I was in about the sixth grade. So I was probably age 10, 11. 
so those were really four formative years where I really developed a lot of my sense of um, who I was and how I operated in the world, um, which I can now look back on as an adult and say, oh, those are my formative years where I, where I uh, developed these systems of belief. But I also grew up in California where we had droughts um, in the late 80s and early 90s. We had a lot of droughts. There was a lot of water rationing. You couldn't, there were years where you couldn't uh, water your lawn. You had to take five minute showers, it was, which was hard to be a teenager in high school and five minute showers. And, um, so I remember that very, very distinctly and understanding that resources were finite. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think you also have the California upbringing of recycling was just something that you did. It was right. um, it was how you got rid of your garbage. Um, so I, I remember that very distinctly. And then I, the, the third thing that I think led me to this was that I went to Africa in, uh, I, I went and I lived in Zimbabwe. Uh, I lived in a township mm-hmm. uh, in 1995 and I kind of went, I felt very comfortable there because I went back to this Okinawan route of, um, the most important thing was the relationship you had to other people. Mm-hmm. There was not a lot of extra stuff around. There wasn't a lot. You were making do with what you had. You were growing food. Um, and so that for me was, and then and it was this real sense of community. Um, you know, everybody in, in, in Zimbabwe um, spoke English as well as Shona and maybe in Debele. And so there was, there was differently than Okinawa where you felt like a little bit of an outsider there was this real community. So it was almost like the, the, everything I had already experienced in terms of finite resources and in terms of using what you had, but then with this other element of um, kind of uh, love and community and sharing and um, more, more of a collective um, kind of an idea. Like if one person had a car, there were six families that used it, right? It was like the Uber before Uber in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So this concept of sharing. And then after college, I moved to New York. And about a year later, I met my now business partner and co-founder of BPCM, Vanessa Bismarck. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, let's, let's start an agency together. I said, I don't really want to start an agency. I want to go back to Africa, but I have to figure out how to get there. And I have to figure out how to do that. And I'm going to go there and I'm probably going to live there for the rest of my life. Right. I said, well, why don't we do this until you figure it out? <laughs> so 21 years later, <laughs> here I am. Uh, and BPCM is now, uh, you know, we have an office in New York. Uh, we have an office in Los Angeles, which is run by my other amazing business partner, Ali Takeman. We have uh, an office in London, Modus BPCM, which is run by my partner, Julian Vogel, who I've known for 30, you know, who, who's had Modus for 30 years and Vanessa and I've known him for 20. So right. really, um, and it has grown into a company that um, we really put purpose first in our practice. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't always the case, you know, for the the beginning, I would say the first 10 years of our agency, we were one of the big fashion agencies. We were, if you were launching a fashion brand, if you were dusting off an old fashion brand, we were the people you came to, you know, and um, Vanessa and I, neither of us come from fashion. So we both come from backgrounds that are, Vanessa came from a business background. She used to be a sugar trader. Oh, wow. Okay. 
So for us, it always had to be, and I had worked with bands and with band, you must connect to the fans. You must find a way to connect to them and not only connect to them, but get them into the room. You have to get them to buy a ticket and come to a show right. or your band is playing to an empty room. And I can tell you right now that there is nothing more uncomfortable than a band playing to an empty room that you are in. I mean, there is one person it's not theirs. It's not their music. It's not their, you know, it's not that they didn't show up for the morning show that morning. It is that it is your fault right. that there's nobody listening to the band. Right. So from these two perspectives of things have to make business sense from the Vanessa place, and you must connect in a way that not only gets people to go, oh, that's cool, but to go, oh, I need to go do that. Right. Is kind of like how, how BPCM started. Um, and about seven years ago, I, um, I was pregnant with twins. Um, and I had worked on a project with an amazing woman named Kara Smith. You should definitely have her on your podcast. Um, and she was tasked by Muhammad Yunus to open the New York campus of GCU. Right, um, right. Glasgow Caledonian University. Mm-hmm. Um, their motto is for the common good. Mm-hmm. And Kara had worked in fashion all of her life. And so she set out to figure out how fashion could be for the common good. And she's the first person who said the word sustainability to me and it was, have you ever heard of sustainability? And I said, I've heard the word. And she said, right, we're going to figure out how this applies to fashion. So I was so inspired by her. She went, you know, she went to the UN, she talked to anybody possible. So she kind of opened this door for me where I thought, okay, well, this is super fascinating to me. So this was super interesting to me, this concept that nobody was really talking about how much impact the fashion industry had. Right. So I was on bed rest with um, my pregnancy and so I had two months of where I was supposed to sit still. And Ava, you know me well enough to know that that was not going to go well unless I had some kind of a project. Right. So I made learning about sustainability, my project. I yeah. was watching webinars, which weren't really a thing back then. I was learning, I was teaching myself how to read white papers. I was I had books and books of notes on what a, different abbreviations meant because there's so much vernacular in um, this world of sustainability because it's rooted in science. So I was really, it was almost like I was giving myself my own master's degree. And then when I would read a white paper and there was something interesting or something that maybe they hadn't made the connection between the material science they were talking about and the world of fashion, I would call the <laughs> I mean, I remember calling universities. I mean, I was also like on these uh, uh, on these uh, drugs to keep me from having my babies too early. Okay. And my partner used to call them the truth serum. So I would just call the switchboard at MIT or at Bard or at NYU and say, I would like to speak to so-and-so because I read their white paper. And, you know, you could just kind of see the, the face of the person <laughs> on the other end of the line. <laughs> But eventually, people ended up talking to me because they were so curious about the fact that somebody in fashion mm-hmm. might possibly care about this. You know, there were no pseudo experts on Instagram putting up, you know, great little infographics about how bad it all is or spreading sort of half truths. It was really it was, it was source work. And so by the end of that time, I came out of that with two new babies and a 
complete reframe of of what I'm in the world to do. Right. Almost like a self-taught, you know, MBA or PhD in sustainability, really. Yeah. It was like a little bit of a, a of a drugged up vision quest. This was like, you know, it was it was the um it was my version of an ayahuasca opening <laughs> or something, you know. I, you might not recommend this, you know, exact uh, road for, for just yeah, anyone, yeah. but it worked well in your case. And um, it got me there. It got me there. And, you know, I'm curious because you already had an interest through your own experience living in Africa and just, you know, growing up between uh, the island uh, near Japan, Africa, California, and and also wanting your first agency to be rooted in purpose. But there's something... Uh, there's a contradiction with fashion really being about consumerism and, and you know, mass consumerism at that. Um, and fashion is, you know, I remember having a discussion with someone recently and they said, um, well, actually with uh, Liz Cabral, who you know from Purpose and Perspective, and we were talking about, you know, what's the, what should someone do if they're launching a new brand and they want to be sustainable? And her answer was, how about you don't launch the brand? Because... <laughs> Because we have everything already, right? Everything exists. And it's more about finding a way to reuse and upcycle, uh, et cetera. But how, how did that make sense for you? Well, I think what it really took was a lot of honesty and a lot of humility and a lot of taking a good look. Because to be honest, you know, that first 10, 15 years was, was not about purpose-driven, right? It right. was about success. It was about being, if you asked me, you know, what my mission was then it was to, you know, empower other women because I was this successful female entrepreneur. I had created a company of a hundred people and, you know, all women in positions of power and, you know, I, I, you know, mobilizing brands and creating networks across the world. I mean, that really felt like success to me at that moment. Right. And, and if you asked me if I was successful, I would have emphatically told you just just how much I believed that I was. Um, and so when I began to understand the impact and, you know, in, in, in the, in the, in the early, for most of, of that time up until then, we had worked with luxury brands only. It was sort of a, it was very, it was kind of a snobby thing. I don't want to say it was a snobby thing. We were incredibly fortunate to work with the best luxury brands in the world. I mean, right. that, that is who trusted us. And then, you know, as, as the years went on and the high lows sort of started to come in, mm -hmm. we started to work with more mass brands. And so when I started to have this sustainability revelation in the beginning, I was like, ooh, maybe I can't work with these mass brands anymore because they're doing these, uh, they have this huge impact. Right, right. And then I worked with the luxury brands as well. And I was like, well, the luxury brands also create a footprint. They're just actually in even more denial about it. And we are telling ourselves lies about um, how much better we are for buying them. Right. Now, there are beautiful things about luxury brands and, and we work with incredible ones. And it, it's around, it is around quality and craftsmanship and things that you keep forever that, that are, are heirloom quality. And those things are important when you're talking about sustainability, but it's not everything, mm -hmm. right? Everything creates impact. And then we work in other in other uh, areas. So we also work in beauty. 
Um, we work in high-end travel, high-end wine and spirits. It's interesting because wine and spirits um, are so much farther ahead mm. in terms of um, just from a chemical usage perspective, because anything you spray on those grapes, you taste in the wine. Right, right. Well, they were into biodynamic before biodynamic was a thing we were talking about for growing anything else other right. than grapes. Right. So what I would say is that I, I had to take a hard look at what my role had been mm-hmm. in this. And I, um, a great, great friend of mine named Stacy Flynn has an incredible Ted talk that everybody should watch. Um, she's the founder of Evernew, which, um, mm-hmm. takes, uh, post-consumer garment waste and turns it into new, beautiful premium fiber. Mm-hmm. And Stacy had this Ted talk where she talks about going to China and being in the subcontracted areas and the subcontracted areas are where you see the blue rivers from denim and you see the incredible smog from these factories and you see these piles and piles and piles of waste that they kind of can't get rid of. And she said, I could no longer look at myself and my job and say that I was doing a good thing. And I felt inextricably linked to the problem. But she also said, if one person can do this much damage, one person can be this much solution. Mm, That really spoke to me. And I started to look at this whole thing differently. And that is when we started to make that shift into purpose. And that took, I will, I give my business partners, my three incredible business partners and my amazing team so much credit because, you know, they watched me go off on this vision quest and they came back and I came back and what I came back with could have been viewed as dangerous to our entire livelihood. Absolutely. If I was going out there and talking about fashion and talking about its impact and talking about how bad it was, BPCM could be kaput. Right. You know, there was, we, and we're responsible for the livelihoods of a lot of people. Right. And the careers and the, you know, all of that. And so it was really my business partners being super open and saying, okay, you clearly have a vision. You clearly have a passion and none of us want to squash that in you. Here are our concerns. Mm -hmm. Here is what we want to, you know, they, they said, you know, that's, that's our big concern is that you put the agency at risk. Our other concern is that you need to do this in a way that helps make things better without alienating people. Right. Really. And, and so in a way I then had my vision and then I then had the lens through which to look at it through. And that, that is really what we have tried to do is we, we internally, I mean, sustainability is a word that I don't love. There's a lot of, I, I do a lot of public speaking and I give a lot of seminars. And one of the first things I say is I hate the word sustainability and you're not going to hear me use it very often, but you will hear me, you will hear the word impact come out of my mouth more than you care to, because that is really what we have to look at is impact. And so when there are people who say, oh, how can you work with this brand or that brand who are big, giant conglomerates? 
I say that's where I can have the most effect. Right. If mm. I get them to shift their thinking, if I get them to think about something differently, if I get them to make a better decision, we get to shift faster. Yeah. Because the impact of all of that helps things shift fa- faster. Mm-hmm. Now, if I get luxury goods, if I get something that is the most beautiful jewel box of a product that maybe doesn't have the physical impact to change what they are doing, that's effective too, because the influence that those brands have influences the rest of the industry. Right, right. So let's talk about the state of the industry, the challenges that we know we face. And I'm also curious with how you started approaching, you know, what was your pitch to brands? was, okay, we know, you know, we know this is an issue. And really when you started speaking about sustainability, it wasn't a mainstream topic yet. I feel like it's become a little bit more part of our, our, you know, everyday conversations now. So how did you go to brands and what kind of first challenge were you tackling with them? Well, my first challenge was convincing people that we had something they needed Mm-hmm. that they didn't know that they needed, that they needed to pay for, that was not yet a line item in anyone's budget. Right. And the way that I did that was I was lucky enough that we we already had a thriving company mm-hmm. that I didn't need to, in that first sort of year or two, I didn't have to go to them. And and I wasn't trying to keep the lights on with sustainability. Right, right. It was another so one. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's be clear that, that you know, I wasn't raking in the box from from telling people how to like change their chemical management. Right. (laughs) The first thing that happened is that I got a call from uh, Kelly Slater's team. Mm -hmm. Basically right when I got back from maternity leave and they said, we hear you are one of the only people who understands fashion and sustainability. And you grew up in California and you potentially speak surfer. And I was like, but I'm, I might actually be the only person for this job. And um, so I helped Kelly Slater and John Moore launch Outer Known. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the things that gave me a case study in you can do this. You can do this the right way. You can do it in a way that's affordable. And you can still... It doesn't mean that you have to make everything out of hemp and it doesn't mean that you have to look and feel like a quote environmental brand, um, but that you can do things the right way. And Kelly always said to me, I want to prove what is possible in the fashion industry. I want to prove how possible this is because he wanted to be something, he wanted to be someone who opened up that door so that everybody else could follow in. And, you know, at the time he was on the professional surfing tour and he and I had a conversation about sustainability. And I said, you know, listen, I'm, I'm still on this journey and I'm trying to learn more and more and more. And he said, listen, if my name helps open a door for you, push it open, Mm -hmm. but then tell me everything you learn. And so that was kind of what I did. I, I continued to go on this path of, um, I would like, he'd be in Australia and I would DM him and I would say, Hey, Look at this kid, Boyan Slat from the Ocean Cleanup. This guy's amazing. He's like 20 and he's like creating a solution for cleaning up the Pacific garbage patch. And I remember him DMing me back, let's meet him. <laughs> and so, we did, like, so I started a relationship with him. I like 
you know, like started a relationship with like his marketing team. And then we eventually, it, like eventually he, we brought him out to the surf ranch. And, you know, so it was one of those things where it was really, it was an expansive time. And I think if you looked at what I was doing, it looked fun and it looked exciting and it was energetic and it didn't feel like this, um, some of the really necessary boring nitty gritty work of, Hey, we need to talk about your chemical management. Right. Exactly. So, like, chemical, chemical management cannot be underspoken of. It's, it's a real issue for us in fashion, but I think people saw a place where they could get, um, where they could walk in, right. where they could open the door. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So, and fast forward to now. So how, what have you seen in terms of progress and this was what we're talking about is what about was maybe 10 years ago, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was probably like seven years ago. Yeah. So in over that that period of time, you know, what major progress have you seen happen? Let's let's talk about the positive before we talk about the negative. What, sure. what kind of you know projects, measures have been uh, implemented? What have you know, what have you seen brands do that's really innovative? in that front. And obviously there's some brands that were more eager to jump on, on that process for some brands. It's a more difficult conversation because, you know, again, they don't want to add that line to the, to the budget and they see it as a, uh, as a headache more than a, than a solution that's going to, that's going to bring positive impact. Yeah. So I think one there's, there's a couple of places where you see progress and I want to commend the Black Lives Matter movement, because what we have seen, which, you know, a lot of people have been talking about, but it's been quiet voices, or it's been people yelling into the wind, is the idea of intersectional environmentalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, you, there is stacks and stacks and stacks of research that tell us that climate change is real, it's here, and it's affecting um, Black and brown communities more than anyone else. Right, right. And parts of that are because of where they live. Parts of that are because of how um, they have been ghettoized socioeconomically, yeah. uh, whether physically or just um, from a socioeconomic standpoint. And, and, and one of those things is because we as a society, and I'm talking about America, but it's really everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we as a society make environmental decisions that benefit white and upper class people. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you look at in America, we had the situation in Flint, Michigan, where they changed their, there was issues with the water source. Uh, due to money, they changed it to using water from the Flint River. All of these people have lead poisoning. Now, that never would have happened in Gross Point, Michigan, which is the upscale wealthy suburb of Detroit. It right. happened in Flint, which is primarily Black, lower income, and these people were viewed as having no... Uh, they, they weren't going to make a fuss. There wasn't going to be... Look at that fuss happened, it would register. Mm. So, or consequences just weren't thought out to the nth degree because these people are viewed as having no power right? by a systemically racist government. Right. So one of the things for me is intersectional environmentalism and the idea that um, 
BIPOC communities, black designers, um, that, that there is a recognition of talent and there's a recognition of uh, resource, uh, unfair resource allotment and those things. And so people are really starting to think about those things. Now I am ready to see action there. And um, I am trying to figure out the ways in which to be um, supportive and vocal about those things in a way that really is helpful without making it my voice mm-hmm. um, and, and really by elevating those voices. And we're really working on that at BPCM. Um, one of the other things that you see uh, people going in and doing is material assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's the first place people usually start because it's in a way it's the easiest. It Nobody in fashion owns their supply chain. Right. So what I find is that the labor situation is something that we really have to work with people on because they don't own their supply chain. So right. getting the supply chain to change, putting the money in so that these suppliers are able to do the things that you want them to do, finding the right programs, finding the right grants, finding where the money is, because these things do require money. If you want to go from somebody making $10 a week to $10 an hour, you're going to need some financial assistance. It's good. That money has to come from somewhere. Right. Um, so helping people understand uh, how to, how to create those systems, but people are, are looking at it. But then materials seem to be the place that people feel they can pick up the fastest. So mm-hmm. can you change your uh, cotton supply from being conventional to organic to then regenerative? There are organizations like the Textile Exchange that do incredible work in helping people uh, understand the, the pathway to doing that and, um, and, cre- and, and giving incredible service that way. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners that can provide education, financing, mentoring, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you through workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. Did that answer the question? It, yeah, I think it did. <laughs> um, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm such a babbler. <laughs> no, no, this was great. And so if we, and I think you gave us some, some elements uh, of answering my next question, but uh, what is the roadmap? So for a brand that, um, you know, and I'm sure you work at, at different levels of a brand's progress when it comes to implementing sustainability, what would be the roadmap that you recommend to a brand that's starting from scratch? So the first, so <laughs> if you are a brand and you're starting from scratch, I want you to sit I want you to meditate. I want you to think about the product you are bringing into the world and see if you could be doing something else. Mm-hmm. Much like Liz Cabral, <laughs> share the view that most everything we need 
is already available. And right? I, I was also asking the question from the point of view of a brand that exists, but wishes to go down the path to sustainability. What is a, a good place to start for them? So if you are a company, large or small, it doesn't matter your size. The first thing you need to do is look at your brand DNA. Who are you as a company? What do you stand for? Do you stand for anything? If the answer is no, the first exercise you need to do is figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, I'm, I come from a marketing background and that is, that is the, because, because in order to be sustainable, it, so the word sustainable means capable of being sustained, right? which means that you must stay in business. Mm -hmm. The only way you can stay in business is by having a healthy business model and attracting customers who are going to stay with you for the long haul. Look at all, look at the great brands in the world. They know who they are. You can pick out who they are and what they've done. Like mm -hmm. look at Hermes, you know, you know, an Hermes product, there are physical touches that tell you it's an Hermes product. But then once you hold an Hermes product, you think this will last forever, mm -hmm. right? If there, it's, it's very important, this, because it actually directly relates into your sustainability from, an, from a, a, a physical sense. Right. The next thing you do is you really honestly take a look at everything. The first thing I encourage people to do so that you don't get worn out is to look at your materials because your materials are very simple to look at. There is a vector between good and bad. You can assess and say, this is an excellent material that, you know, you, I would say, make yourself a matrix of good, better, best, figure out where all of your materials sit and say, okay, 20% of our materials are in the best category, meaning that they're regenerative organic. 40% uh, are in the good or in the better category, meaning that they are maybe um, organic or that they don't use pesticide. And then, you know, the rest of this is sitting in the okay, good, like baseline category. Mm -hmm. So then you set yourself some goals of, by X time, and it's very important to have deadlines for these things, otherwise they never happen, right? Um, it's like we're, we are all trained by sort of high school and college that like, you know, you, you're not going to get the paper done unless you know when it's due by. Mm -hmm. You're not going to just sit down and spontaneously do it because that's what people do. People don't do that. People say, when is the deadline? Yeah. And I'll do it by then. So set yourself deadlines, but please set them soon. You know, like no more than I like to say 18 months because you can change a supply chain and uh, you can change the material supply chain in 18 months. Mm -hmm. Even if you're a gigantic brand, you have to start fast and you have to work hard, but you can change a material supply chain in 18 months. Um, and so that you have a goal of when you can get those baseline fabrics into the better category and when you can get those better category fabrics into the best category so that you have some, some things to work toward. And those are things that are quite, um, they're almost arithmetic, mm -hmm. right? And you you can put you can understand the financial implications of those things. You can understand how that's going to change your margins, etc. And you can plan for those things. The next thing to do is figure out how you actually treat humans. 
-hmm. And what I always recommend for this is bring somebody in. Right. This is hard work because it requires such an honest assessment of your practices, who you have been, who you want to be, who you're going to be, and take a really honest look. That means not just the humans who, because a lot, a lot of brands are very like female power. Let's, let's empower women. Yeah. Are you, does that mean let's empower white women? Mm-hmm. Does that mean let's get more black and brown women into um, entry level positions? Or does that mean let's make sure that we have a diverse board, a diverse leadership team? Yeah. We are guilty of that at BPCM. I mean, you know, we have a, we have an incredibly uh, undiverse uh, mix, but we have had to do some really serious, heavy looking at ourselves and being honest about how those things happen and that we haven't been mindful of those things as we have built. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say we've never had black people working for us, but we, we certainly don't have many right now. Right. So, you know, so it, it, this is for everybody. And then you look at your supply chain and say, okay, 75, 80% of the supply chain, depending on what studies you look at, is female. Obviously, I'm on a podcast about brands, Mm -hmm. about women and and brands being female. So you look at your supply chain. Your supply chain is probably mostly female. Mm -hmm. How are you supporting them? How are you empowering them? Are you creating good situations for them? Are you creating a situation where they can just work the 40 hours a week that they are supposed to work and support their families and spend time with their children and create opportunity and, 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 or is this a subsistence living where they depend on overtime Mm. and they still have to work another job and the children have to live with their parents because they never get to see, or the children have to live with grandparents because they never get to see their parents. Right. What kind of a world, what kind of, you know, a lot of companies talk about work-life balance. Okay. So work-life balance for the people who work in your first world countries, you know, doing really the tasks of designing and marketing and um, selling, but how about quality of life for the people who create, who make, that you would have no company without? Right, right. So it's it's really, those are the things to look at. And again, on the human side, it's so... um, it really is challenging mm-hmm. because it requires an enormous amount of humility and honesty and empathy. And I am, I am deeply empathetic to anybody who goes through this work because it is work and it is soul work. It really is. Yeah. And it, but you will develop yourself as a leader in a way you could not have imagined possible. Yeah. And you become an inspiration to the people who, work for you in a way that you could not imagine possible. And there are um, examples of that all, all over the place. And if you don't do that, you become the cautionary tale of many people who have become cautionary tales during, uh, during this quarantine time. Um, And I think, you know, you bring up a good point because for, for a lot of companies, um, they associate sustainability with just the environment component and which is very important, we know, and we we live in a you know in a, a global climate crisis. Um, but sustainability encompasses way more than just the environment portion. 
And I feel like sometimes companies will do part of the work and then they're very, you know, they're very proud of what they've established, but then it leaves them uh, open and, and uh, you know, at, at risk, both from a reputational, but also just from a values point of view, because they haven't assessed labor supply chain, as you're pointing out, the human I element. Think, yeah, it's, it's a very good point. So one, one of my great influences in my life, and I don't know why, but I became obsessed with him when I was about eight was Buckminster Fuller. And he's known, he's most known for creating the geodesic dome, right? And he created the geodesic dome so that parents could have inexpensive places to live and raise their children Mm -hmm. where they wouldn't have to worry about resources. And, you know, so it was really interesting because his whole thing was about his daughters and being able to spend more time with his daughters. Um, And, you know, and that's why he created the geodesic dome. But one of his great philosophies and one of his, the things that he used to talk about in lectures all the time is that as a human being, if you find or feel that you are divorced from nature, that you are other than this planet, that's when the greed and the capitalism and things like that Um, He wrote a very dense book called Grunch of Giants, which talks about this a lot. And I highly recommend it if you are okay rereading chapters over and over to make sure that you've got it. Right. Um, But but it is this philosophy of it is a change in philosophy. Mm -hmm. The change in philosophy has to be I am a part of you. You are a part of me. What if you thrive? I can also thrive. If I thrive, you can also thrive. If we thrive, we must do it in harmony and in concert with the planet. Right. And those things, it's, it's like two plus two equals a million. Yeah. It really is when you shift your thinking to be in that mindset, things like Ellen MacArthur's principles on the circular economy become just second nature yeah. where it is designed things so that they can be, so that they last and then once they're once they have outlived their use, that you can easily disassemble them into their component parts, and then that you can take those component parts and put them back into the system mm-hmm. and use them again. So whether that be through just plain material usage, chemical recycling, mechanical recycling, it it's all the same thing, right? The food movement has shown us that. Right, right. Mm-hmm. This idea that we gr- if you grow better food, you become more nourished. If you take the waste from that food that is created, you know, you've got parts of plants that you can't eat and you put that back into a system of composting, you create this rich biodiverse material that then helps you grow the next nutritious food. This is old and this is, this is, this is part of not divorcing ourselves from nature. This exactly. is part of being married to nature. Right, right, which is key. We talked about, you know, what brands should be tackling, what a roadmap can look like for them when they're going down the path of sustainability. Consumers also have choices to make, and that can be difficult because, you know, making a wise, educated choice is not easy. And often there's a lack of transparency when it comes to information. So it's really hard to know, is a brand really 
green? Are they sustainable? Are they doing the right things? There's also, as we know, greenwashing in, in marketing. Uh, it includes pink washing and, and black washing as well. So we know we can't always just believe what a brand is telling us. And what's your personal approach to uh, making choices when it comes to what you know brands you buy from, what you consume on a, on a day-to-day basis? This is such a good question, and it is one that I get asked all the time. And what people always want is a checklist of who are the good guys and who are the bad yeah. guys. Just yeah. tell me and then I'll do that. <laughs> and what I will say is I will never give that answer because it's too, it's, it's too simplified. The first thing to do when you're thinking about buying something is it, this takes personal work. It is asking yourself, why am I buying this thing? Right. So that's number one. And let's remember, I am a woman who makes my living helping brands sell you things. Right. 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 And I am even telling you before you buy something, you think, why am I buying this? Am I buying this? Cause the guy I want to call me hasn't called yet <laughs> am I buying this because I saw some influencer on Instagram. Am I buying this because a friend recommended it? Am I buying it because I need it? And I'm not saying there's a right and a wrong answer, but there's certainly a scale, right? Like there is certainly a sliding scale of considering our purchases. Mm -hmm. And I am all for considered purchases. So you get, you get past that part of, I have considered why I'm purchasing this. Right. And we'll continue on to phase two, which is to go make the purchase. Now you get to the point of to your to exactly what you said. I'm so glad you saw it. There's there's greenwashing, there's pinkwashing, there is there are claims. People make these claims that blackwashing, like you know. So one of the things that you want to do in the same way that I ask brands to assess their own DNA and their own values, assess your own values. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What is important to you? What is the most important thing to you? Is the most important thing to you to support Black-owned brands, female-owned brands? Because you start there. You start, is is the most important thing to you uh, chemistry, like no chemicals? Is the most important thing to you uh, no synthetic materials. What What is the most important thing to you? Because you have to make, if you if we get people to start making purchases based on their value system, I can help move this sustainability thing along real quick. Right, right, yeah. It'd be a different so world. Me, yeah, so to me, consumer behavior has to start with considering your purchases. Do I need this? And then who am I and what's important to me? Mm-hmm. So now you've come to a place where you are like, you know what? Supporting black female-owned businesses is the most important thing to me. And I need an eye cream. Right. You've, you've, you have funneled down to exactly what you believe and what's important to you. Mm-hmm. So is, and, and you say, I need something that, that is um, no chemicals and that is clean beauty. So now you're down to a place of like, I'm going to look for a black owned business run by a woman. I need an eye cream, no chemicals. Well, it's very clear. There's probably only a few. Yes. And if there aren't ones, then your backup is, okay, who makes a clean beauty product and supports black 
and female um, initiatives. Right. Who, who is in support of this community that I support? What do you think COVID has changed in you know global consciousness? Is it making a difference? Are people now more sensitized and and more aware of the challenges we face? And you know, it was COVID BLM movement of of protests and and movement of support for racial rights. Um, is it really changing consumer behavior? Do you think we're going to see lasting change? So my very favorite meme during quarantine has been like, Mother Earth has sent us all to our rooms to take a time out and think about what we've done. Right. Yeah. Because that is how this moment in time feels to me. It We have never before had a moment where the entire world was put on pause. Mm-hmm. And especially in America, we are in a place where we are having to think about what do we need? What do we wear? How do we act? How do we treat ourselves? How do we treat people who are not us, who look different than us, Mm -hmm. who think differently than us? So I think all of these things are giving us this pause to reset our own intentions Mm -hmm. and to reset our own ways of being. Right. I don't know anyone who is not affected by this. Now, I think that white people were completely and utterly shocked and affected by the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Black people were completely aghast at the fact that white people only just saw for the first time, apparently what they have been seeing for years and years. This is not the first murder of a black man that was recorded and viewable on YouTube and Instagram. In fact, over the last five years, we've had a shocking amount of them. So I think the most important thing is that people are awake in a way that they have not been before They've been forced. I think a lot of people, myself included, I used to, you know, before you and I got on, we were talking about how much we used to travel. I used to travel a hundred thousand miles a year mm-hmm. and it's really easy to avoid yourself when you are traveling a hundred thousand miles a year. Right. It's really easy to sort of put on a persona when you get somewhere and do your song and dance and then get back on a plane and kind of, you know, be in your little microcosm and then go home and be a different person there. And, and in fact, I think everybody has been forced to do that in some way. Mm-hmm. And so my great hope, and I know that there are people more cynical than I, maybe they're wiser than I, who are like, you know, things are going to go back to normal and everybody's just going to forget about Black Lives Matter. People are going to forget about sustainability. They're going to start consuming like crazy people again. But I think this has been a collective trauma. Mm-hmm. And collective trauma, we know from history and from psychology, collective traumas affect people for the rest of their lives. Right. And 
either in positive or negative ways. And I think I am banking on the positive. Okay. So I think that there will be people or companies who are bad actors who go back to doing things the same way that they did before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I also think that those companies will experience the horror and the wrath of people who have become enlightened, who have become more mindful, who are making these choices from a place of, um, of global community. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a lot of hope. I really do. Mm -hmm. We, we don't have a lot of time to fix these things. And so to me, this global quarantine was a gift from mother earth to sort of really put us in our rooms to think about what we've done. Right. But also to give everybody just a collective reset. And what's mm -hmm. interesting, when you look at this from a very like um, up from space point of view, you know, when have we ever had anything since the extinction of the dinosaurs, which was the entire world affected by the very same thing. Right. Right. That's true. Yeah. A true global event. And then I'm going to ask you my, my favorite question to ask guests on the show. And now we're coming out of the frame of sustainability for a second, but what do you wish women specifically would do more of? Women are so powerful. I have two female business partners. They are not afraid to tell me when I'm wrong. They are not afraid to tell me when I am right. They know that giving of themselves isn't giving things away. It's putting more into the world and it is eliciting a response of giving in return. Mm -hmm. And when I look right now at what we need to tackle in America in terms of racism, we need the women. Agreed. We need the women to look at ourselves and to understand the power we have to make change, the power we have to be humble, the power we have to admit mistakes. These are all inherently female qualities that we can do all of these things without losing anything. Mm -hmm. Don't lose anything by saying, you know what? I thought about this all wrong for most of my life. Women are very good and incredibly resilient at saying, oh my gosh, I thought about this the wrong way for my entire life. Now I will set about trying to change it and get you and you and you and you and you to work with me to change it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to change your mind. I'm going to change your mind. I'm going to change your mind. This is, this is our planet. And the patriarchy has done a pretty good job of fucking it up. So I think now is the time where women are here to create change. It is our time. We tried this, this patriarchal experiment has not worked out so well for us. I think women work in community. We work in villages. We work in um, pods of community and we are interconnected to other people's pods of community. And we can create this systemic change. We are these powerful, powerful organisms. Mm -hmm. 
and we have so much influence. And for some reason, for centuries, we were told we had none. Right. Yeah. I do believe that this reset is a time for us to support all communities. Mm -hmm. And it is also, P.S., I'm not a man hater. Right. It is time for us to help the patriarchy understand what it means to move forward. It is time for us to help men embody a new kind of masculinity. Mm -hmm. I have two sons. And for me, um, I see my responsibility with them being to teach them a new kind of masculinity, Mm -hmm. a respect for nature and resources and human beings and animals and just this real reconnection to going back to that nature is something we are not divorced from is something we are part of. So that's for me, I think women have an incredibly powerful place right now. We have a very big job, but it doesn't feel bigger than us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. And in closing, so we talked about, you know, your, your wish for, for women overall, um, what's in your, uh, you know, that, that page in your journal for, for goal settings for, for 2020. And we, we got a bit sidetracked with uh, recent events, but what, what are you working on specifically? You know, it's so funny at the beginning of quarantine, when I realized that it was going to be a long time, I didn't think it was going to be this long, but I thought right. it was going to be a long time. I thought by the end of it, I was going to have rock hard abs. I was going to be <laughs> meditating so much that I could levitate at will. I was going to be a gluten-free vegan and all of my children were going to be speaking a second and third language. <laughs> Great plan. Ava, I'm here to tell you none of it happened. Um, and, and I'm, I'm now a little bit okay with it. And so I think, I think the lesson, the great lesson I have been taught during quarantine is balance and paying attention to my own internal life. What, am, where are my thoughts? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What do I need to release? What do I need to incubate? So for me, I think the rest of 2020, I really am dedicated to this kind of um, temperate temperate goal achievement. Mm -hmm. So maybe I don't work out every day, but I make it a part of my life. Maybe I'm not a gluten-free vegan, but maybe I'm thinking about the amount of meat that I eat. Maybe I'm not meditating for four hours a day, but that I'm making that a part of my day every day. So that there is, because I think if I take care of myself, I am taking care of the collective in this way that we just discussed that women have this huge job to do. Mm -hmm. Women are also really good at attempting to do this job while being completely frazzled and frantic and, and, you know, using all six of our arms. But I think if we can, I think the more of us that are in a calm centered place with a lot of balance, we're not only just examples for other women. I'm now at a place in my life where I'm sort of middle-aged and, and I think, there's ladies who look up to me. So, you know, and I, I look at my own, my own teammates, the women who work for me and the men. And I think if I am crazy and frenetic and frantic, 
that's what I'm telling them good work is. So actually I've like tried to take a step back and to say like, I need time off. I need to have a day a week where I don't zoom with anyone mm -hmm. so that I can finally be on the brand is female podcast with Ava because today I don't have any zoom calls, you know? So I think that's for me, that's my, that's my 2020 goal is, is balance active, but balance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Love that. And wish you all the, all the best with the, the goals you've set. We'll, we'll, we can check in, you know, a little bit later in the, in this time of COVID that we're in. Uh, thank you so much, Carrie. We could have continued this conversation for another two hours, but we'll, we'll stop it here. It's my great pleasure. Thank you so much, Ava. I, I love what you're doing and, and I'm, I'm just over here supporting from, from your American outpost here. Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, further support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening and stay safe. Yeah.